from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. The 2021 CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference is right around the corner. This year's GAC takes place virtually from Tuesday, March 2nd to Thursday, March 4th, and as always features an unmissable lineup of speakers. I'm Casey Mishlevy, Deputy Editor with CUNA News. This episode features pre-conference interviews with some of the thought leaders who will share their expertise at GAC. We'll hear from author, speaker, and social change agent Kevin Carroll, who has dedicated his life to advancing sports and play as a vehicle for creativity and change. Next, we'll discuss leadership, resilience, and strategy with former U.S. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. Finally, we'll explore the current social, political, and media landscape with journalist, documentarian, and author Soledad O'Brien. To learn more about these speakers, visit news.cuna.org. Kevin Carroll is a firm believer in the red rubber ball. That's his metaphor, stemming from a difficult childhood, for the pursuit of his personal best and the power of play. We all need a why, Carroll says, or a driving force that propels us forward. That's his red rubber ball. CUNA Deputy Editor Bill Merrick talks to Carol about the significance of the red rubber ball, the role of play in the workplace, and how to connect with others when you can't be together in person. Kevin, can you tell me the significance of the red rubber ball? So the red rubber ball for me actually represents the chase, what you're pursuing each day, and what inspires you to get out of bed in the morning, but you need to know why. And I think it's important that you have a why to get you out of bed, especially in these harrowing, ambiguous, uncertain times. It's easy to roly-poly and stay in bed. So I think everybody needs something they're chasing, something they're pursuing. And so the ball represents that. But literally, it was a ball for me that uh, changed my life's trajectory and saved my life. I always say that very sincerely, that a ball saved my life. So it's what you're chasing. For me, literally, I'm chasing sports and play and fun on the daily. And you've said that play can be a vehicle for social change. What do you mean by that? And can you maybe give an example? I've been fortunate to witness the power of sport and how it can be used as a social change agent all over the world. And I mean, from getting an opportunity to see people use something that we marginalize or think is frivolous to actually address conflicts, social issues, gender issues, education issues, and use it as a convening tool. And then now that we're all gathered, now let's have a robust, important conversation around the issues we're facing as a community. So from being a part of the Homeless World Cup, which is an amazing soccer tournament with marginalized individuals playing and representing their countries. And that's been around for, oh gosh, I want to say it's probably 20 plus years now to Beyond Sport, which is a global gathering of social innovators who use sports and play as their innovation tool, their catalyst to make a difference in their communities around the world, to getting an opportunity for me personally to work with nonprofits all over the world. One specific one I love is Playworks, 
and they're recess advocate group. They're based out of the Oakland area, but they're national here in the United States and they do amazing work. But during the pandemic, they actually have created virtual play. So it's been amazing what they've been able to do. They have a playbook that you can download for free and you can actually learn games that you can play not only in your family or as an educator, but also in business. So they actually have virtual play for business people too. So I've actually done the scavenger hunt and a couple other things with people. And it's really a wonderful opportunity for people to laugh again, to find time for fun. And I love this one quote from Stephen Johnson who wrote the book, Wonderland. You'll find the future wherever people are having the most fun. So let's not marginalize play. Let's elevate it and recognize its importance in us building community, innovation, creativity, problem solving, any of those things that we're being asked to do, play is at the root of that. And what's the role of play in the workplace? Play in the workplace is all about culture and and innovation and creativity and problem solving and disruption because it's about creative confidence. And so When we're playing, you know, what I've always said is when my body's moving, my mind is free. So I've got this openness and I think there's something really great around play allows us to feel joy again and be passionate about something and movement is important. And so no matter your physical abilities, you have movement when there's blood flow, right? So you're alive, there's movement. And so when you start to think about it at its really basic level, play is about engaging with someone else banter, eye play, movement, any of those things. I mean, you look at a parent with their newborn. Oh, play starts right away because they're tracking you, right? They're following you. You're doing eye play. You're doing little movement play and you're trying to get that smile. It's no different for us when we're adults, right? We want to be engaged and connected and feel a sense of joy around each other. So when you go back to looking at play in the business world, I always say play is serious business and play is serious in the business of innovation and creativity and problem solving, ingenuity and disruption. So finding time for fun and making sure that you don't marginalize it. Hey, you do that on your weekend time. No, let's actually find and be intentional and purposeful about creating playful moments because we know it brings people together and creates community and that collaborative spirit can serve you well in all your endeavors and business. How can an organization develop a culture of play and what does that look like? So I think when a business is looking at creating a culture of play, you have to be purposeful about it. What are we trying to get better at? What are we trying to raise our game on? Do we need to be more innovative? Do we need to have better communication? Are we dealing with some internal conflict? Start addressing first and foremost, what is it that we're trying to improve or get better at or elevate? then once you know that, you can actually start to do research on ways to actually elevate that through play if it is something you want to lean into. So I think you have to have very clear goals you're trying to elevate and go after. And then think about play from a purposeful standpoint. What are we trying to address and how we can actually craft these playful moments that have purpose and intention And then you can elevate whatever it is that you want within your organization. I do think that play can be at the root of all those things. And I hear people all the time, well, what's the ROI on play? And how do we measure that? And I always go back to, if you're trying to create a culture where people are excited about coming to work, I will tell you they're having fun. They are enjoying what they're doing. 
and they're enjoying the people that they're working with and collaborating with. And that goes back to how do we get along? How do we communicate? How do we respect each other? How do we have empathy for each other? And all those things are rooted in play. Must be harder in a remote environment that many of us are in right now. Do you have any advice about continuing that focus on play when you're not necessarily together physically? Yeah, I think there's still ways to do it. It's funny. I haven't seen some of my friends in almost a year and I feel closer to them because we over communicate now and we're really intentional about checking in on each other. And so I think, you know, even in this current state that we're in of being more um, remote and distance from each other, I don't like the word social distance. We are physically distant from each other, but we're still trying to be social. So that's the way I look at it. And so the more that we actually are designing playful moments within our Zoom calls. So I'll open up a Zoom call always the same way. I'll ask one of two questions. In one word, how are you feeling right now? Put it in the chat. Or if you were a weather report, a personal weather report, what would your weather forecast be? And they're hilarious what people will put, but that's playful, right? But it also gives me a glimpse into the state of everyone and the well-being. And so that's something that I really pay attention to and just finding ways to actually inject playful moments with purpose. Hey, we're going to go and do a little storytelling exercise and we're going to do this in our breakouts, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to work on this, mixing people up so they're not with the same people. There's lots of ways I think that you can create connection, even though we are physically apart. And I just think it's a matter of what's your appetite and what's your energy level to do it. And what message would you like to offer the uh, attendees of CUNA's Governmental Affairs Conference when you address that? I think my conversation will be a holistic look at a true advocate of the credit union community, me. And I look at it from a holistic standpoint, mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being, and financial well-being. And the credit union has been there for me through good and challenging times, through uncertain and unexpected times, and have been nothing but a partner for me. And I've said it, and I will never go tired of saying it, is that the credit unions are part of my success story. And I know that I wouldn't be enjoying a lot of the success that I have if it wasn't for the credit union believing in me and supporting me. So I'm the biggest hype man and advocate for the credit union and for CUNA. And I'm going to hopefully share that with the audience and let them know that advocating on behalf of CUNA and the credit unions is the right move to do because they're about community and they're about lifting up the community. During a military career that spanned more than three decades, H.R. McMaster learned that to create a cohesive team that understands its purpose and mission, you must demonstrate those actions yourself. CUNA senior editor Jennifer Plager talks to McMaster about his military career, leadership lessons he learned in the military, his leadership style, and more. General, you had a military career that spanned 34 years. What sticks out to you from that time? Well, Jennifer, I'd say first that the rewards that come with service, right? I think a lot of people look at 34 years in the military and they they think of you know the hardships, right? The time away from family, the sometimes the Spartan conditions you live in, or or you know, the worst things that can happen, which is seeing those who you care about, who you actually come to love as, as part of a, a military family. 
killed or wounded in action against your enemies. But I think what the American people oftentimes don't see are those less tangible rewards of service, being part of something bigger than yourself and being part of a team in which the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. And and I believe that American warriors are warriors and humanitarians, especially we've seen that since 9-11 as we've been in combat against the enemies of all civilized peoples and people who use mass murder as their principal tactic to pursue their criminal and political agendas. So anyway, it's been such a privilege to serve for, for those 34 years. It wasn't my plan, Jennifer. You know, I, I told my wife, then my fiance, Katie, before I graduated from West Point, that uh, I planned to spend about five years. So at my retirement party, during which Katie roasted me, she thanked me for the bonus 29. <laughs> Would you do it again? Absolutely, I'd do it again. You know, I get the chance to work with young people now, which I love, you know, and and what I've noticed is a tendency that they want to map out their whole lives. They want to say, okay, what are the series of jobs that I need to get to my ultimate goal? And what I try to tell them is, hey, just don't worry about it. Do something fun, challenging, serve in a way that allows you to make a difference in real people's lives. And all sorts of opportunities will come to you that you wouldn't have imagined. And at almost every step in my military career, I didn't go where I wanted to go or get the job that I wanted to get. And in retrospect, I wouldn't have changed any of it. What was the big leadership lesson you took away from your time in the military? There are a lot of leadership lessons, obviously, but I think the main one is what determines your effectiveness as a leader, maybe more than anything else, is what is your base motivation? Why are you there, right? If you're there to make a difference, to help accomplish a meaningful mission, if you're there to foster a good environment for the people who serve with you so that they feel like they're making a difference, that they're part of an organization in which people are bound together by common purpose and mutual trust and respect and and ultimately your know, affection to a certain extent, you're fostering that kind of a climate and that's what you're all about as a leader. Hey, you can get a lot done and you can build teams that are committed to each other and committed to excellence. But you know, some people are motivated by their own agendas, right? <laughs> the personal agendas to get the next job or the next promotion, or maybe you know, a very narrow agenda that they want to advance themselves that and they have maybe relative disregard, you know, for those that who they're leading. And so I, I think it really comes down to why you're in it to begin with. How would you describe your leadership style? Well, you know, I think it's all about building cohesive teams. And I think the way that you do that is obviously you make sure that there's a common understanding of the purpose of your organization and a common understanding of your mission. And then also that the leader then sets the example for the team, right? If you want people to treat each other respectfully, you should treat people with respect, for example, right? If you want a team that's committed to excellence, you have to set the example yourself. If you want a team that is willing to endure hardships for the accomplishment of the mission, you've got to be right there with them. So I think leading by example and the development of cohesive teams is probably the most important aspect, I think, of, of leadership in the military, but I think beyond the military as well. Your book, The Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, is all about national security. What are the biggest foreign policy or external challenges that our country is facing, and how do we respond? I think that it's time for us to have meaningful, civil, thoughtful discussions about the challenges and opportunities we face, because it's going to take all of us. The competitions that are right about in battlegrounds, from the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party and various forms of not just military aggression and cyber aggression, but economic and financial aggression, 
cuts across the public and private sectors and into academia as well. And, and you know, the threat from Russia, right? And Putin's playbook, as I describe it, is meant to drag everybody else down. So Putin's the last man standing and to do so through this campaign of disinformation and disruption and denial. We face hostile states of, of North Korea, which is the only hereditary communist dictatorship in the world. And he's trying to get the most destructive weapons on earth. That's a tremendous danger. And Iran, which has been fighting you know, a, a four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, us, the little Satan, Israel and, and the Arab monarchies. And then we also have to consider these transnational threats, threats that, that operate across cyberspace and in space as a competitive domain, the interconnected problems of energy security and climate change and environmental concerns and food security, water security, and health security, especially, right, and as we're in the midst of a pandemic. So what I write about in the book is how we can better understand these challenges and then what we can do about it, right, how we can work together to overcome those challenges and build a better future for generations to come. What do you hope folks take away from listening to you speak at GAC? We all have a role, right? We all have a role in improving our strategic competence. Maybe that's just demanding better from our elected officials and governmental officials in terms of the degree of competence that they display. And then also to help improve our strategic confidence, our confidence in who we are as a people and our common identity as Americans and our confidence in our ability to implement a sustained approach to foreign policy and national security. Soledad O'Brien has covered some of the country's most sobering challenges, including Hurricane Katrina, youth incarceration, the nationwide opioid epidemic, and post-traumatic stress disorder among veterans. She takes a connect-the-dots approach to reporting on these issues, starting with historical events and decisions, and demonstrating how they affected policy and practices in place today. Providing context to these challenges must be a top priority for journalists, O'Brien says, to inform meaningful solutions that move people forward together. I speak with O'Brien about creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive society, navigating today's saturated media landscape, and having productive conversations with lawmakers. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a top priority within the credit union movement, Talk about your experience elevating these priorities in your own work. Yeah, you know, years ago, so I've been doing this now for 32 years, but diversity was very much, there was no inclusion and equity. No one even brought those up. And, and diversity was this idea of, listen, kumbaya, it's good to do. Let's all hold hands in the middle of the room and love each other. And I think now there has been, not even recently now, for the last five years, it's really been this idea that there is a business value in diversity and they've added equity and inclusion, this idea like, well, if you're going to have diversity and you don't have inclusion, what's the point? And I think the business value is if you can grow your client base, if you can add value to your company, you're just getting into markets. So Warren Buffett used to say years ago when he was competing in the business, he's like, I only competed against 50%. It was only guys. Like it's much harder now because you're competing against everybody. Because women now have been allowed into this discussion, and that has raised the quality because you just have more people who can be good people. I think people are beginning to realize that they can very much improve the quality of their content by also bringing these diverse teams together and making sure that they're working together smoothly. 
so I think you're really seeing some real shifts because it's no longer this kumbaya, this is just good for everybody. I find things that are just good hearted to do, those things get cut first. <laughs> they get cut all the time. We found in projects that I've done, I, I think our show, matter of fact, is one when I did a series called Black in America at CNN, it was another. It's all good to do these projects, but they have to, for me, they have to win. They have to literally win in ratings. They have to win in advertisers. They have to win. Otherwise, you're just not going to get a budget for the next year. Everybody can say nice things about you, but if you don't win and you don't make money, you will not get a budget for the next year. And so I think we're seeing both with our show, Matter of Fact, and with many other organizations, people are seeing like, wow, diversity, if you really leverage it and do it the right way and include people and make sure you're managing the process. It can't be a free-for-all and it can't be a fake and it has to come down from the CEO. It has to be a real thing. Then you do well. Otherwise, you have high turnover. Otherwise, you have people who feel like, oh, this place isn't for me and the good ones leave because they can always. So I was talking to a guy who's CEO of a shipbuilding company a couple of years ago now, really interesting guy. And he said, you know, we take our employees from the pool in our community. He's like, I'm a good person. I, I never thought about diversity. We just hire good people. And he said, then I realized, because it takes about eight years to become a master shipbuilder, around year three, my diverse employees were quitting for reasons like they just didn't like the feel. They didn't feel like they had a path. You know, all these things that sound very esoteric and disconnected, you know. And he realized like, well, shoot, I better understand <laughs> what it means to feel connected to your job, what it means to feel like you belong and that you have a path forward, right? All those things actually mattered. And he's like, hey, I never thought about it. Not because I'm a bad person, because I just sort of, the, the company was built around me, <laughs> you know, and I had to, if I wanted to make sure that I wasn't losing my shipbuilders who I'd spent $150,000 training them, I sure as heck better solve this problem or I'm just going to keep losing money and losing money. And every three years, I'm going to have to find new shipbuilders, which is costing me money. Super great guy. I think a really good guy. But I think his motivation was financial for his company, that he had to solve a problem of how to get the best people in his community. And if those people who are the best people were diverse, then you better figure out what's going to make them want to stay in your company or, or they'll just leave. And you've interviewed a lot of people over the years, including many, many lawmakers. What advice can you share for cultivating meaningful conversations with our country's decision makers? I wish I could tell you that, listen, going on cable TV is a really great way to have a meaningful conversation, but it's really not, unfortunately. And, and as I was saying a minute ago, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. What I have really found works for lawmakers is not... John Doe thinks you're a liar and Bob Smith is the opposite side of you. And now you guys get the next four and a half minutes to fight it out. But instead, what you actually get is, so what does your community need? And how do you see solutions? And who in your community do you want to work with? Like, let's talk about, and there's a lot now, it's called solutions journalism. And we've started doing a lot more of that. Like, what's at issue here? What needs to be fixed? And how do you fix it? And I'm not going to slot you into, you're the Democrat, so you must believe this, and you're the Republican, so you must believe this, but more like, talk to me about your community and tell me in terms of how you make things better. So for example, we had a woman on our show who was trying to figure out how do you pay for insulin? Honestly, I have no idea what her politics were, right? But the conversation was interesting because she talked a lot about like, well, you know, my daughter needs it. It's life-saving. She only makes $40,000 a year. And by not making it political, we had a much more thoughtful, and I literally have no idea where she stands, and I don't care, and it's irrelevant. But 
I want to understand her issues and where she sees solutions as a person who's invested in this complicated thing called healthcare. So I think that's the way to do it, to remove politicians from this. On the left, we have this. And on the right, we have this. And they're going to duke it out over the next five minutes. And instead say, like, I want everybody to come with their solutions. And by the way, I think that conversation works in offices as well. If it's this versus this, everyone's going to sit in their entrenched sides. If you say you have to come with a solution, we have to work on, let's figure out the five things we all agree on that are screwed up that we have to work on. I think that's a much better plan. I think lawmakers want to get points for accomplishing things. Everybody does, right? We all want to get points for accomplishing things in our community. The more you can tee that up for them to do, I think the better. And finally, we've just finished one of the weirder years, probably, in in history. So I'm wondering, what new perspectives have you gained from the experience of living through 2020? And how will it affect your work going forward? Yeah, that's such a great question because the pandemic has been very weird. And in a lot of ways, I'm very nervous because I think it's exacerbated income inequality, right? Like we know that people like me hunker down at home, got ring lights and TV quality cameras and you know, audio systems. And, and uh, I have a $600 microphone and I just continued working. And my husband, who's in finance, got a bunch of computers and they were all set up in his bedroom and he just continued working, right? And then other people lost their jobs altogether. And other people continued to feel like I'm taking my life into my hands, but I have to go to work. So it's been really stressful in a lot of ways and stressful on the economy, obviously, and stressful for individuals. And then I think a lot of people are struggling, mentally struggling with how things are right now. I see it. I see it on my team. It's really a challenge. I've learned a lot as a boss on how to deal with my staffers and how to make sure we're checking in with everybody kind of emotionally. I never did that before. People came to a meeting. I was like, okay, hey, welcome. And we dive into the meeting. You know, now we have conversations. What's coming up? What's worrying you? How can we be helpful? I think that's one thing. Um, I think we've learned a lot about what we're able to do remotely. I don't think I'm going to make all my staffers come in one day. I just don't see us going back to that. And I think we also just really are checking in on one another because isolation is unnerving and it's crazy and it's, it's scary. It's just hard. And you realize like there's so many people living in isolation and it's very, it's very hard. So we're in a very tough time right now. And I, I look forward to the day we come out of this, but also I hope people learn a lot about sympathy for people who are struggling in that way. I run a small foundation. We send girls to college and Early on, there's one woman who runs the foundation, right? She started at me do daily call with the office. And she said, you know, can I join your daily call, right? Because if she didn't join my daily call, she wouldn't be in a system where she got to check in with people every day. And I was like, of course you can, you know? And so we go around and even though she's not part of our production company, where we're going through, here's the schedule and here's the shooting and oh my gosh, it looks like the gear didn't get to Texas and da, 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 da. I remember when she asked, I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. Like if you don't join our daily call, there's no one checking on you daily. Like there's no one having a conversation of how are you doing daily? I don't know that I ever really thought about that before. And I don't think we're ever going to not think about our colleagues that way. If you'd like to hear more from this year's GAC speakers, look for another episode this week featuring interviews with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Starting March 1st, you can follow CUNA News coverage of GAC 
at news.cuna.org GAC. And to register for the conference, visit cuna.org GAC. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.